Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And this podcast will be continuing our study of, of Thomas Paine, reading through his major works as collected by the Library of America, um, looking at 100 pages at a time. This episode will be focusing on the final crisis letters and then some of the essays he wrote later in his career after the American Revolution, um, both dealing with France and um and his very important, I think, contemporary, I mean, a very important essay for us in this contemporary world, Agrarian Justice. Um, that music you heard was The Hymn of Liberty, which is actually a, a song from the, the French Revolution. So there's quite a few essays in the final, this final section. I'm not going to look at all of them. I mean, this covers the whole period from 1782 until the end of his life. So what I'll do is I'll quickly look at the last three crisis letters, all of which were written more or less when the revolution was was finishing up, when there wasn't really any fighting going on. Then look at agrarian injustice, and then talk about his views on the execution of Louis the the sixteenth, Louis Capet. So crisis eleven. Let's start with crisis eleven. It's not very interesting. It's mostly news. It was written in seventeen eighty two, not long after the previous crisis was written. This one is mostly news on the peace negotiations and the state of the U.S.'s alliances with France and Spain. Payne was a big believer in supporting and cultivating those alliances with, with France and Spain. In this summary, he, he gives at the end, this will suffice for explaining what's important. It's really the last pages of, of this crisis letter. Quote, In short, we have nothing to do but to go on with the vigor and determination. The enemy is yet in our country. They hold New York, Charleston, Savannah, and the very be- being in those places is an offense and part of an offensive war. And until they can be driven from it or captured from it, it would be folly for us to listen to an idle tale. I take it for granted the British military are sinking under the impossibility of carrying on the war. Let them come to a fair and open peace with France, Spain, Holland, and America in the manner they ought to do. But until then, we can have nothing to say to them. So, yeah, there's still a danger, but... Britain will lose and peace will become, but that peace needs to be collective. It needs to be with all of our allies. And it is important to mention that the Treaty of Paris of 1783, which resolved the American Revolution, was signed between Great Britain and the United States. It was not a general peace with all the belligerents. And in a sense, the U.S. did betray its first ally, France, by signing a separate peace with with Britain to end the war. Um, So think of that what you want. Crisis 12. This is a letter to the Earl of Shelburne, written in October 1782. It's another example of Payne being the classic troll. And listen back to the previous two episodes on the crisis letters, and you'll see that's a major theme, I think, Uh, especially for a contemporary reader to read Payne, someone from our time to read Payne. It really sounds like he mastered being a troll. It's a lot of fun to read when you look at contemporary, especially internet debating. He makes fun of a ridiculous speech given by a political enemy. It's fun to read for the, simply, it's kind of like what his previous crisis, which was a response to the King of England speech. It's just fun to read because there's such a huge gap between the reality on the ground, the real military situation of Great Britain, 
and the fantasies that the British holdouts who would say there could still be some peace or reconciliation between Britain and the U.S. It has some nice prose in it too, which I'd like to highlight. In general, the crisis letters aren't the, the finest of political speech ever, but there are moments in which Payne is really his, you know, shows himself off as a great writer. Quote, alas, are those people who call themselves Englishmen of so little consequence that when America is gone or shut your eyes upon them, their sun is set, they can shine no more but grope about in obscurity and contract into insignificant animals? Was America then the giant of the empire and England only her dwarf in waiting? Is the case so strangely altered that those who once thought we could not live without them now declare that they cannot exist without us? Will they tell the world and that from the first minister of state that America is their all in all, that it is their importance only they can live and breathe and have a being? Will they, who threaten to bring us at their feet, now cast themselves at ours and own that without us they are not a nation? Are they so? Are they become so unqualified to debate on independence that they have lost all idea of it themselves and are calling on the rocks and mountains of America to cover their insignificance? Or, if America is lost, is it mainly to... Manly to sob over it like a child for its rattle and invite the laughter of the world by declarations of disgrace. It's a really great um, summation of some of the points he made, all the way back to common sense that, you know, America has is matured and it doesn't uh, need England anymore. But here he says, he turns down on his head and says, is England so fallen and Britain so fallen and so dependent on America for its own survival that America has become the master? It's a nice turning of the tables. Now, the final crisis letter is dated in April 19th, 1783. It's the anniversary of the beginnings of hostility in 1775. And with this pamphlet, Payne is free to conclude his thoughts on the war and the state of America in its aftermath. He begins by reminding us of his opening line. It's, and the opening line of the crisis was, these are the tri times that try men's soul. He opens this one by saying the times that try men's souls are over. He seems to know that the next big fight will be over the unity of the states. And he even argues against keeping the separate states and starts to envision perhaps a, a, a different formation of the, of the republic. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting thought of what America could have been if they would have took Payne's advice, not been a, a confederation of states. Uh, unified by a constitution, but rather maybe a, a, a more straightforward democracy. And certainly with the current election, the 2016 election, it's easy to think back on what ifs, if there had been another foundation to America except states' rights. So that wraps up the crisis letters. Um, like, like I said before, it's a mixture of trolling, of, of commentary on what the future republic could be in terms of taxation and national unity and the relationship between states, um, news, and propaganda. It has, a, it has a lot of different functions. And I, I think they still have value to read, maybe less so than works like The Rights of Man or Common Sense. Um, but, you know, I think they still have value to contemporary readers. Um, but now I want to move on to the his failed attempt to preserve the life of Louis Capet, the former Louis XVI, King of France. Um, now, when Louis XVI was overthrown, the Republic was finally established in France. There there had been, of course, the original French Revolution, which created a constitution, but it kept the king. So it was a constitutional monarchy. And then over the course of events, they got rid of the king altogether. And then there was like, what do we call this guy? You know, he was always like, you know, Louis the 16th. 
And they came up with the name Louis Capet, you know, going back to the earliest French kings, the Capetians, taking that name as his surname. So his name is really Louis Capet, according to the French revolutionaries. Now, Paine was a strong supporter of the French Revolution, without any doubt. He, he wrote The Rights of Man, which is a defense of the French Revolution. And this was maintained even though he almost lost his head in the terror, right? He was, the story I heard was that Paine was like literally in jail and someone made like an error. Or he would have gone to the guillotine except for an error in kind of the bureaucracy. But his argument is useful to us, particularly when you think about crime and punishment in our own time um, and specifically capital punishment. One of his arguments was that we should make a distinction between the position of the monarchy, which we should be violent towards, and the person who happens to be king, who may or may not suffer the same fate as the position. We can abolish the monarchy without abolishing the person who holds the position of the monarchy, right? Um, and I think this has a lot of interesting ramifications, like, you know, in the terms of like corporate crime, right? Do we punish someone as a CEO? Do we punish a corporation or do we punish the individual who sits in that chair? Is there a difference between the position where someone will do evil things, horrible things as someone in a position of power? But is that is there a difference between them doing it as a CEO or a king or a president and the position itself? Right. To quote Payne here, I'm inclined to believe that if Louis Capet had been born in an obscure condition, had he lived within the circle of amenable and respectable neighborhoods at liberty to practice the duties of domestic life, had he been thus situated, I cannot believe that he would have shown himself destitute of social virtues. So he actually says, I think Louis Capet, Louis the Sixteenth, would have been a good person had he not been born king. What is useful about this to us is that this opinion applies broadly to almost make capital punishment impossible. Who is to say that any run-of-the-mill thief or murderer would have been a member would not have been a member of a cooperative and stable community or family, right? Couldn't we say this about anyone? The murderer, if they would have had the right upbringing, if they would have had the right education, if they would have been born in a different neighborhood, in a different family, they could have been an upright citizen. If this is the case, should we be able to execute anyone? It would not, it would be enough to prove that a crime, you know, it would not be, I guess it would be not enough to prove a crime, but the accuser would also need to prove like a degree of irreparable malice or depravity in the person to justify capital punishment. And that seems almost impossible to argue. I mean, you can never argue what someone could have been in a different situation, unless you want to take like the ideas of maybe progressive era eugenicists who would say that's almost social deviance was almost a genetic inheritance. Certainly Thomas Paine wouldn't have believed that. He's of the Enlightenment, the era of Thomas... Locke, who's talked about the blank slate and all that stuff. If you take the blank slate idea, the idea that we're born basically neutral on which anything can be written based on our upbringing and education, how could you ever argue that someone is irreparably malicious and evil and malevolent? Now, his second argument for keeping Louis Capet alive is that he should be praised as a defender and supporter of American liberty during the Revolutionary War. So this goes back to his loyalty to the American Revolution. And he says the king supported the American Revolution, and that is worthy of itself. And his third argument is quite apt for us as well, is that capital punishment is a tool of monarchy and should not be used in a republic pretty much at all. He, he thinks it's not a tool of a republican formal government. Quote, monarchical governments have trained the human race and inured it to the sanguitary arts and refinements of punishment. And it is exactly the same punishment 
which has so long shocked the sight and tormented the patience of the people that now in their turn they practice in revenge on their oppressors. But it becomes to us strictly on our guard against the abomination and perversity of monarchical examples. He's going to say similar stuff in Rights of Man, that the worst sins of the French Revolutionary, the Republic, the, the radicals, are merely copies of the worst sins of monarchy. Okay, so that's his feelings on the execution of Louis XVI. Which brings us to agrarian justice. Um, agrarian justice will be will long be remembered and used by leftists, not because it simply because it provides a plan that is applicable to our own life, but rather because it makes one of the clearest cases for each human being stake to a share of the commons. Payne's plan in agrarian justice was basically a citizen's wage to be paid at the age of 21, pay, you know, which would be paid through, which would be funded through an inheritance tax. So that's the idea of that. Inheritance taxes would be collected and basically form a citizen's, a pool of money that could be used to pay off a citizen's wage. Everyone would get it at the age of 21. All right, that's the idea. We would now maybe look at universal basic income schemes and say this is essentially the same idea, right? That we pay heavy tax on wealth and high incomes, and we use that to ensure that everyone has a basic means of survival. Essentially, I think this is a basic income because in Payne's day, this citizen's wage would be enough to perhaps buy a farm, to buy some land, and, or to start a business. Essentially enough to make sure that you had the capacity to survive in the future. Now this has the goal of everyone getting the rightful share of the earth and their ancestors' inheritance. It's both the natural wealth of the earth that's being defended, that everyone has a claim to, but also the inherited wealth of our ancestors. The prosperity, like the improvements that we've made to life over the years through technology, through knowledge, through science, that is all owed to everyone in the next generation. It would also ensure that no family would have an unacceptable claim to power through an entrenched wealth, right? He believes that this is a source of aristocratic power. Quote, it is not charity, but a right, not bounty, but justice that I'm pleading for. Though I care as little about riches as any man, I'm a friend to riches because they're capable of good. I care not how affluent some may be, provided there are none miserable in consequence of it. So he wants to create a floor. So the citizens wages this idea of a floor on which that the that floor is uh is is exists because of the wealth that comes before the work the labor of all people that came before us in our current generation now in a sense this there's a point here drawn a little bit from Locke, who claimed that you know labor theory of property rights but as long as there was enough left behind for the potential prosperity of all others yes the wealth you create should be your wealth but that shouldn't be so excessive that it leaves other people hungry and starving Right. Um, now we can, you know, I think we can use this principle to make a locking argument against property in most of its forms that manifest in capitalist society. Right. Everything from banks owning foreclosed homes that they did nothing to create. I mean, I don't want to necessarily embrace the full Lockean logic of property rights, but even if we do that. Even if we take the fully Lockean view of property rights, that your labor is a source of your property rights within certain limits that you're not taking more than what you need to basically have a prosperous and successful life and you're not keeping other people hungry. If that, Even on that logic, how can we justify billionaires 
having all this wealth? How can we justify banks seizing foreclosed homes while floodless people, homeless people flood the streets? How can capital abstractly owned factories work by others? How can you justify any of that, even on like the pure Lockean argument of property rights? The basic principle of the commons that Payne posits here is that there's, since no one really made the earth or made civilization, the most just way to distribute the wealth and value contained in these areas is through basic equality. Quote, I have already established the principle, namely that the earth in its natural uncultivated state was and ever would have continued to be the common property of the human race, that in that, in that state every person would have been born to property, and that the system of landed property, by its inseparable connection with the cultivation and with what is called civilized life, has absorbed the property of all of those who it has dispossessed, without provided, as ought to have been, an indemnification for that loss. Now, this is the same argument made by many radical I guess anti-proprietarians like the diggers in England during the Civil War made the argument that there was a common treasury of, of mankind, which we all have a basic claim to, right? That had a kind of religious characteristic to it as well, but largely it was a, a, a right to property, a right to survival. So I, I think this is a really important argument. I think this is the foundation of our claims for a, what I want to say, a, a universal basic income of some sort. And we see it here in Thomas Paine's Agrarian Justice. So um, I think that's going to do it for Paine's essays. I'm not going to say much more about some of the shorter essays collected in the Library of America um, book. Um, it gets us about halfway through this book. You can't see it, but I have it here. It's I'm halfway through. Uh, there's actually two books left, The Rights of Man and Age of Reason. And I'll probably spend about two episodes on each of those because they're both broken up conveniently into two parts. So. Um, we're halfway through our study of Thomas Paine. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, if you have your own opinions about the crisis or Paine's pamphlets, please um, send them to me. I will read them. You can contact me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and thank you for listening. I'll see you in 100 pages with Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man. Un peuple indigne de la tour libre Sans les venger, les vies périr Sans les venger, les vies périr Liberté, tu n'étais que la bénie dans le de Rome Mais ton triomphe est plus assuré